Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we have the opportunity to reflect into the life and thought of one Pope Francis. And it is Wednesday, so I have Bob Cross with me. Bob, it is great to have you with me another evening. Thanks, Joe. Good to be here. So, mm-hmm. Bob, a number of things to discuss here. I did say last week that we will make sure we uh, gain some ground and offer up some relative reflection to paragraphs 115 and 116 in Joy of the Gospel. We have some exciting subject matter, I think, to get into. Subject matter that really lies at the heart of the vision of the new evangelization. And subject matter we haven't talked about really that a, a whole lot yet. And that concerns the way we think about culture. That being said, uh, certainly something important came out this Sunday. There was a another interview with Pope Francis, and he addressed some questions regarding the Synod. And I think, Bob, it was uh, two or three weeks ago, I can't remember which week, um, that we talked about the importance of going to the primary resource of the Synod and all of the discussion about it. And by that, I mean going to Pope Francis himself. Because why? Well, everything else is a secondary resource. So you have to go to the source himself in so far as better understanding uh, what he believes, what he's about. And it was two weeks ago that I had said, you know, <laughs> there isn't an unrecorded thought. Uh, there isn't an unrecorded sermon, homily, address. You just go to the website, and, and the Vatican website, it's all there. And so it is to no surprise that on Sunday, when this interview was published, that he opens up with this statement about, you know, if you read what I've been saying over the last 18 months, I don't know if there would be this much confusion. Quite frankly, there wouldn't be, and therefore there shouldn't be. And he went on to, I think, clarify to some degree some fine points, just not within the Synod, but some of the things that people have been talking about. Um, but dare I say, his lead-in to that interview, that statement that if you just followed what I've been saying, your head wouldn't be on a swivel right now. Remember what we've talked about before, Bob, as it relates to journalism and the sin of writing misinformation and holding back information. Okay, sloppy journalism, it's a sin. What does that mean? Well, that means... Satan is working, okay? And if Satan's going to to knock off anyone, who is he going to go after? The Pope himself. I mean, we were talking about it the other day. We flippantly asked the question, well, is the Pope Catholic? Well, people are actually asking that question. Is the Pope Catholic? And it's silly. And of course, the adversary, Satan, the enemy, wants us thinking this way. You go actually into what he says? Just not enjoy the gospel, but what he's been saying from day one, and you begin to see just not the clarity of his vision, but one that is in continuity with his predecessors, most notably Benedict XVI and St. John Paul II. So very important. You know, it's, it's so funny. And, you know, like you said, we've 
talked about, you know, hey, the Pope's Catholic, you know, the obvious. You know, it's that old adage. And it's consistently, and we, we say it each and every week when we, we have these discussions, that with the joy of the gospel and with everything that he says in interviews, um, he doesn't even feel the need to defend himself when he, re- he reads all this stuff and mm-hmm. he hears about, you know, what's being said or written about him. But he's so um, rooted in his faith that he doesn't even want to, I, I'm sure, dignify it by expressing any kind of defense, which even goes more to the heart of this is who the man really is, because why would he defend himself? Now, if he was something that he isn't, or if he portrayed himself to be something that you know he's not, he would have the need or feel the need to defend himself mm-hmm. or try to, to cover his tracks. But every single time that we, we talk about an interview or something else, um, he doesn't feel the need to even defend himself. But in... This, uh, you know, this interview the other day, he actually did clarify a few points mm-hmm. on, on Cardinal Burke or on you know, gay marriage and some other things. And, and he's just, it's, it's interesting. Um, he doesn't defend himself or try to defend, you know, the fact that he is um, a, a man of faith and he is what he, what he, he represents. Mm-hmm. Um, he just clarifies some yeah. things. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the media just keeps putting words in his mouth. They don't listen to what he says or read what he has to say. They just print what they think they want him to say. That's an excellent point you make, Bob, as it relates to dignify. Now, I do get on one hand the need to clarify if there's something being put out there um, that is causing such a ruckus uh, that, well, maybe a soundbite or two would help it. And I think this is some of what he was doing, but... But it's nothing new. So, for example, in this most recent interview, a key word for him was uh, what he's already talked about, the integration of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who might feel like they are on the margins. And I'm thinking about those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay, it's not about pushing them away, but it's about re-engaging them. You know, Pope Francis made the point, Bob, did he not, (laughs) that, you know, we never even talked about gay marriage. The question was more about how do parents enter into this dynamic of pastorally handling their children if they struggle with same-sex attraction. That was really the lead issue. Um, Certainly, there are a lot of other issues that we've already talked about a great deal we're not going to rehash right now. But for, for us right now, the essence of it is what Pope Francis said is what he has been saying, okay, since day one. And we emphasize this again now just not because he said it, but because from here until the, the Synod in 2015, October 2015, you're going to be hearing a lot from secondary sources. And all I can tell you is please go online, hit the Vatican website, and just see what he's saying. See what he's saying. And uh, what you'll come to note is what he's saying is in line with everything that the church teaches because the Pope is Catholic. Pope is introducing gay marriage into the synod of the family. Well, you know, he's not talking about that per se in terms of how it relates to doctrine, but he's talking about, okay, families of, you know, children who want to get married or, or adult, adult children who want to get married. How do we make that family feel like they're not being pushed out? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a big difference. Whereas, oh, okay, well, the Pope's, you know, endorsing gay marriage, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, communion for divorced Catholics or whatever. It's not what he's talking about. Which, oh, by the way, as we talked about it last month, is what the Catholic Church teaches. The Catholic Church 
calls on all Catholics to be sensitive, to engage those who struggle with same-sex attraction, and to journey with them. And at the same time, yes, it says that, you know, we're not to negotiate the core truth of who we are in our Christian anthropology, but that does not mean we push them to the margins. And not that Benedict XVI or John Paul II did, because they obviously didn't. But certainly this is something that Pope Francis wants us to be thinking about, okay, to continue to engage this question. This has as much to do with the way in which this whole issue has advanced in the last 5, 10, 15 years. The reason why we weren't addressing it the way we are today is because there wasn't the full court press on gay marriage. It wasn't the kind of social dynamic that it is today. The church always responds to the issues that are before her, and she always does it in a very discerning way. And as we talked about again before, Bob, a synod will take its time to discern. Another point that Pope Francis made, huh? (laughs) People always go to, well, this cardinal or that cardinal said this or that. Well, you want to know what? Cardinals have been blowing smoke for 2,000 years, so we need to get past that. We really, really do. So if we're going to get to know this man... Right, as I've talked about, we need to not only go to what he says, but to reflect upon it, okay? And what the church is thinking about when certain words or certain phrases are used. So let us engage, joy the gospel. And as I noted off the top, Bob, it's going to give us the opportunity to reflect upon this uh, great topic of culture for a little bit. So why don't you get us going with paragraph 115. Paragraph 115 is, uh, reads this way. The, pe- the people of God is incarnate in the peoples of the earth, each of which has its own culture. The concept of culture is valuable for grasping the various expressions of the Christian life present in God's people. It has to do with the lifestyle of a given society, the specific way in which its members relate to one another, to other creatures, and to God. Understood in this way, culture embraces the totality of a people's life. Each people, in the course of of its history develops its culture with legitimate autonomy. This is due to the fact that the human person, by nature, stands completely in need of life in society and always exists in reference to society, finding there a concrete way of relating to reality. The human person is always situated in a culture. Nature and culture are intimately linked. Grace supposes culture, and God's gift becomes flesh in the culture of those who receive it. Amen. So, what does culture literally mean? I think he gives us certainly a clue to get us going. I want to dig a little deeper here so as to maybe expand and to really get inside of what Pope Francis is saying there. If you were to go to Webster's Dictionary, you would find culture defined something like this. Beliefs, customs, art, etc. of a particular group of people, group, or place. And What we are made to see is that expression comes out of a belief system. So when Webster's Dictionary defines the word culture and starts it off with beliefs, customs, so on and so forth, whether they did it or not, Bob, intentionally using the word beliefs first is very important because who we are and how we behave comes out from some sort of belief system. I mean, any student of history knows, whether it be... (laughs) the Romans and the Greeks and their mythologies, 
or maybe the, the Mayans or even the Aborigines, they all have some sort of belief system. And that belief system, that code would ultimately dictate their behavior, right? And if history is not your thing, I think Hollywood, some of these producers and directors have done a phenomenal job of really capturing the essence of different historical periods and what they believed in to really give us a sense of what certain cultures and what groups were about. I'm thinking of Mel Gibson's, uh, what was the movie, Apocalypto, where he got into the Mayan culture. And if you've, if you've watched that movie, you know how <laughs> what they worship rested at the heart of who they were as, as a culture. Uh, and so this is very important. Now, well, what does this mean for us Christians? Well, who do we worship, right? But of course, the one true God. And when you start thinking about who God is, God is love, what we can begin to see is the importance of uh, what that means then in turn for us in establishing a culture rooted in love. You know, when the intellect and the will are illumined by love, our acting, thinking, feeling begins to change. When we actually believe in the revelation of Christ, we start to think differently. When we see that the revelation of Christ is a gift from above that just doesn't destroy the earth when he comes, but actually makes it anew, we can begin to appreciate the importance of why we need to be entering into worship with the one true God. You know, I was thinking on the way over here, Bob, the first wintry snow. You know, I lived in central Pennsylvania for several years. And there's nothing like that first wintry snow. It's as if a white blanket just covers the land. It's beautiful. Now, if I'm looking outside my window, I might not be able to see uh, the bench that was there that morning, or maybe uh, the tree outside as I saw it that morning. That bench is now covered in, in, in a white blanket, and that tree is now, well, looking a little bit like a Christmas tree. The world that morning has been made anew. The revelation of Christ and his gift of grace is like that snow. He doesn't destroy what is there. He transforms it and makes it anew. And when you start talking about the new evangelization, this is what lies at the heart of it. That essentially a Christian culture is born out of our response to Christ. That we can properly say culture follows cult. Remember the point I've made in the past, Bob, how the word culture and its, its root, cultus, means to worship, right? So it is right to say culture follows cult. And again, for us as Christians and as Catholics, this is why the Mass is the source and summit of our faith. We enter into worship with the one true God. He gives us this great gift in the Eucharist, and then we are what we are sent forth to transform the world with the purity of Christ, making the world anew. It would be important to note as well, Bob, and, and I should have talked about this off the top, but, uh, you know, for John Paul II, uh, culture was very important. In fact, one of his highlights when he would talk about the new evangelization was enculturation, which was essentially to bring the gospel values to your local communities. You know, and the beauty of our faith... <clears throat> comes forth just incredibly here in that the sentence that uh, in this this particular paragraph where Pope Francis says it has to do with the lifestyle of a given society, the specific way in which its men members relate to one another, to other creatures, 
and to God. And as Christians, as Catholics, you know, we relate to one another and to God, that God is that even though we might be different than Africans or, or Australians or Europeans, we're Americans, we all relate to one another as we relate through God with our faith. Mm-hmm. And it's the real beauty of, of Christianity, of the Catholic you know, um, um, relationships to one another around the world, no matter yeah. what our culture is. So it's, it's, it's just a wonderful way to think about it in terms of the universality. It really is. You know, it's a pretty cool thing, Bob, to be able to, maybe if you were in Africa, pull up your app and be able to find a Mass to go to on Sunday. And the reading that you're going to hear on that Sunday, maybe it's the third Sunday of Advent, is going to be the exact same reading that your family is hearing in Chico. Yeah. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Essentially, what he is saying in that moment, Bob, is I am absolute and unchanging. And therefore, I am for all people, Gentile, Jew, Greek alike, universal. Okay, and so what Pope Francis is talking about here is this universal expression of the faith. And so no matter where God puts us, whether it be in Chico, or maybe Kenya, or maybe Rome, or maybe Sao Paulo, Brazil, wherever you find yourself, God is calling you to literally cultivate and till the ground with the seed of Christian love. The word culture, as I say, cultus means to worship. The Latin cultura is to cultivate, to till. That's a fascinating truth. I was thinking about this earlier, Bob. If you were to go to Genesis 2.15, and I'm going to flip there real fast. It's been a while since we've been in Genesis. Okay, so we read in Genesis 2.15 this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. To what? Till it and keep it. To till it and keep it. The Hebrew there uh, for till is abodah. The keep is shoman. What's going on there? Well, in that particular verse and in that narrative, he's speaking to Adam as high priest. In the other times in the Old Testament, you see that language, abodah and shoman. It's speaking to the priestly duty. So what is God calling Adam to do? Well, he's calling him to, to till the garden, to cultivate it, and so he can plant roses, right? <laughs> no, no, that's not what he's asking Adam to do. He's high priest. He's high priest. He, quote unquote, keeps the garden. He keeps the paradise. He keeps the tent by doing what? By offering himself back to God. Okay, this is the language of Genesis 2, and this is what we are made to see. This is why he goes where he goes later in the narrative. We don't have time to get into that now. But I went there because you can begin to appreciate the dynamism, Bob, of the importance of understanding culture as it relates to cultivate, to till, and how sacrifice is an earmark, an earmark to establishing a culture of truth rooted in love. Bob, I, something else I was thinking about when I was going through this today uh, about a week and a half ago, we were treating the Benedictines. And for those of you who do not know out there, the Benedictines were absolutely instrumental in Christianizing Western Europe. For all intents and purposes, they not only saved Western Europe, but saved Western civilization. If you can begin to think about the vastness of what I'm saying right now... <laughs> At its height in Western Europe, 
the Benedictine monasteries numbered over 37,000. Wow. What were they busy doing? Well, I want to read from one Thomas Woods. He, he authors the book, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. And again, if you were tuning in about a week and a half ago, this might sound familiar to you. Thomas Woods really gets into the importance of the monks. And really, he says they're not instrumental. They're foundational. That without them, we would not have the Europe we know today. So I'm going to go to this page here that talks about what one expert describes what much of the area would have looked like in the 7th century that the Benedictines would have been dealing with. And he says this, It was nothing but a vast morass. The fens in the 7th century were probably like the forest at the mouth of the Mississippi or the swamp shores of the Carolinas. It was a labyrinth of black, wandering streams, broad lagoons, morasses submerged every spring tide, vast beds of reed and sedge and fern, vast copses of willow, alder and gray poplar rooted in the floating peat, which was swallowing up slowly, all devouring, yet all preserving the forest of fir and oak, ash and poplar, hazel and yew, which had once grown in that low, rank soil. Trees torn down by flood and storm floated and lodged in rafts, damming the waters back upon the land. Streams bewildered in the forest changed their channels, mingling silt and sand with the black soil of the peat. Nature, left to herself, ran into wild riot and chaos more and more, till the whole fen became one dismal swamp. Another author says five centuries later, this is what they would have seen. A counterfeit of paradise, where the gentleness and purity of heaven appear already to be reflected. In the midst of the fens rise groves of trees which seem to touch the stars with their tall and slender tops. The charmed eye wanders over a sea of verdant herbage. The foot, the foot which treads the wide meadows meets with no obstacle in its path. Not an inch of land as far as the eye can reach lies uncultivated. <laughs> Here the soil is hidden by fruit trees, there by vines stretched upon the ground or trailed or trellises. Nature and art rival each other, the one supplying all that the other forgets to produce. O deep and pleasant solitude, thou hast been given by God to the monks so that their mortal life may daily bring them near to heaven. Wow, beautiful. And wherever they went, what were the monks doing? They were introducing crops, industries, or even production methods with which the people had not been previously familiar. They were busy. Now why is the question, Bob? Why? What were the monks about? They embraced manual labor. In fact, manual labor was expressly called for in the rule of St. Benedict. It uh, had a central role in monastic life. This is why we often find monks freely embracing work that for everyone else was difficult and unattractive, since for them such tasks were channels of grace and opportunities for mortifications of the flesh. And as it relates to what that one author observes of what would have been seen in the 7th century, <laughs> what the monks saw is again an opportunity, because they thrived in these locations and embraced the challenges that came within. Ultimately, what for many of us would have been a source of disease and filth the Benedictines turned into fertile agricultural land. I believe in so many ways, Bob, 
that when you talk about this whole idea of building up a civilization of love rooted in truth, building up a, a culture that communicates this wonder of the Benedictine monastic lifestyle of, of work and labor, it's something that draws you in. There was Adam in the garden called to till and keep, huh? to till and keep. And there were the Benedictines tilling and cultivating the land that God had given them the land that God had entrusted them with, and in doing so, building up a new culture rooted in love, rooted in sacrifice, rooted in prayer, rooted in labor, rooted in all those things that we were all called to enter into, Bob. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It really is. And you, you think about, you know, and, and Pope Francis says that here at the end of paragraph 115, he says, the human person is always situated in a culture. Nature and culture mm-hmm. are intimately linked. Yes. Grace opposes culture and God's gift becomes flesh in the culture of those who receive it. And it's a wonderful, beautiful example of the Benedictines. Uh, did, you know, I, I read that line, Bob, and that's why I went yeah. to Thomas Woods, because you can begin to appreciate the relationship between nature and culture, specifically when you start thinking about this whole idea of what it means to cultivate literally but also figuratively in the idea of how we cultivate, uh, cultivate truth in mind and heart. Um, so, and, and what a byproduct as far as evangelization is concerned, right? I mean, oh the people gosh. who are native to the, to the fins. I mean, yeah, come on. I mean, they're, they're bringing that work and that, that, that innovation and development. At the same time, they're bringing God and the mm-hmm. grace of God, you know, along with it. Yeah, and that spirit of Pope Francis, we need to get dirty. We need to roll up our sleeves. And as he put it in this document, start smelling like the sheep, literally speaking. If they would have smelled like sheep, they probably would have smelled good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, uh, Bob, good program. You know, it's, it's always so good to just be able to reflect into the importance of not only what the likes of the Benedictines accomplished, but how they were able to do it. Bob, it has been a great theme on this radio program, Seeds of Truth, to talk about that in God for other moment, that conversion mission, gift task, come to know him so as to make him known. Well, the Benedictines exercise this par excellence because in their aura et labor, prayer and labor, they understood 1,400 years ago that prayer and dedication is the key that unlocks enculturation And that great call we have today to really embark upon the new evangelization, to see the finite in light of the infinite, the natural in light of the supernatural, that we may come to understand if we're going to achieve what God asks us to do in our external activity, we must first go to the interior center, our heart, and open ourselves to God. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.